Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. David Lewis. Dr. Lewis received his doctorate in psychology from the Department of Experimental Psychology at the University of Sussex. He is the founder and director of MindLab International, which specializes in brain research and neuroscience as applied to consumer behavior and decision-making. Dr. Lewis has spoken at conferences, workshops, and seminars around the world on topics including stress, memory, mind enhancement, decision-making, neuromarketing, and techniques of mind control. Dr. Lewis is also the author of several books, including Impulse, Why We Do What We Do Without Knowing Why We Do It. Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My absolute pleasure. Can you talk to me a little bit about your background, what you do, how you got interested in psychology and neuroscience? Well, I started out studying medicine. I'd always wanted to be a doctor. I was one of these awful kids who sort of dissects uh, sheep's eyes and leaves them in the fridge to terrify his mother when she comes down the first thing in the morning to make breakfast. And uh, and I think my best present ever was when I was about 10, I was given a microscope. So my, my heart was set really on doing medicines. And I, I started off, off my medical training, which I, which I enjoyed to some extent, but I actually then fell in love with uh, photography. And uh, I'd always been interested in photography and I'd used photography to kind of record the experiments I'd done and the, the sections I'd done. Um, but it seems such a romantic thing. You know, this was in the when would have been in the mid-60s. It was really the tail end of the great sort of photojournalism era. You had huge magazines still still exist, like Life magazine in America, massively wonderful picture magazine, great great photographers working for it. You had in France, you had Paris Match. Uh, in Germany, you had Stern, Neue Revue, Bunter. So a lot of big picture magazines. So there was still a, a, a market for this kind of photojournalism, which now I think has pretty much died away. Quite a lot online, but but as far as print media is concerned, it's pretty much gone. So I switched uh, on a, on an impulse, which is what I talk about in my book on impulsivity. In, on an impulse, I I decided really instantly that I wanted to give up medicine and become a photojournalist, which I did for about ten years. And then on an in, another impulse, I decided to go back to university and uh, read psychology and neuroscience, and I did a doctorate as as you said in your introduction at the University of Sussex. And I then lectured there in clinical psychology and psychopathology for a while. And I also talked on the statistical course. Uh, and then a few years later, I, I set up MindLab International, which is based in the University of Sussex. We're not part of the faculty. We are actually are an independent commercial company, which operates from the science park at the university. So that's, you know, pretty well brings it up to date. I've done a number of things in my life. And I, when I've made changes from one career to the next, it's really not been with any sort of rational thoughts, setting out a you know a kind of a shopping list, the pros and the cons and the and this kind of thing. It's just like, hey, let's let's give it a go. So that's really been my approach to life. Not I wouldn't suggest everybody does it, but I think sometimes you get a feeling you've got to do something, you should go out and try and do it, even if at the time it seems a huge risk. It sounds like you're the type of man who follows his curiosity. Yes, I think that's a very, very good way of putting it. I think uh, I, I do. I'm, I'm mentally curious about a whole range of things. And of course, the brain is an infinitely fascinating and basically an unknown territory, really terra incognito. We, we know a little bit about the brain. We know much more about the brain than we've done in the entirety of hu human existence, probably in the last decade or so. 
we've discovered more things. But even so, as one neuroscientist said, the amount of light which has been shed on the function of the brain really does serve to show how much darkness there remains. So we're kind of in this vast pitch black cavern. We, we're poking around with small small flashlights trying to make out uh, certain parts of it. We, 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 you know, we're getting there. Not going to get there in my lifetime. Probably not in the lifetime of a lot, a lot of your your listeners, but nonetheless, I think at some point we will have a, a huge understanding of what 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 is consciousness. What does it, you know, how do these innate inert chemicals in the brain give rise to you know the, the beauty of a sunrise or the 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 inspiration of a great composer or a great artist, you know, or a great musician. So I think we're not un, we don't understand this link between the chemical processes in the brain, which we do understand to some extent fairly well. And this subjective experience of just being alive, of experienced life. It's absolutely fascinating. And we talked about this before. I think that your work is incredible. And you have covered such a massive range of subjects. Um, more recently, you've been covering impulse. So I'm wondering if you could talk about what made you interested in impulse. I think it's partly um, from my own background, having having been quite impulsive, I, uh, in my office I have um, the, the, probably the craziest thing anybody ever has ever bought on impulse. You know, if I going going impulse buying, and we all buy things on impulse. I remember making a documentary for BBC Television, and we did the your vox pops. You know, where you stop people in, your, in the street and you ask them questions, and we did some vox pops outside a supermarket, major supermarket in in England, and I was stopping people and saying, you know. Did you buy anything on impulse? As they were coming out of the of the shop, the supermarket, I said, "Do you buy anything on impulse? Did you buy anything you didn't intend to buy when you went into the store?" And they said, "Well, yeah, we bought these cacti because they were on kind of on special offer. We bought these flowers. They'd all bought something. They'd all spent money which they hadn't intended to spend when they went in." And out of about forty people, we stopped. Only one person, a man, said, "No, I before I go into the supermarket, I make a shopping list, and I always stick to my list and never buy anything which is not on my list." And I said, "Well, that makes you a pretty unusual shopper." So he said, "No, not really. It makes me a supermarket manager, and I know all the tricks." So I was kind of been interested to know how our, you know, our impulse purchases are are influenced by things outside of us. Now, what what I bought on the impulse was a, was a head, a second head. Uh, for myself, um, it's a life cast. <laughs> it was made by a special effects company, which makes them for the films and things. If any of your listeners saw a film called The Elephant Man, um, the man who made the mask for The Elephant Man, the prosthesis for The Elephant Man, um, he also made the mask, the head for me. And it's it's an animatronic head, so it can talk, and his eyes blink and things like that. It's kind of strange, <laughs> to put it mildly. And um, it was hugely uncomfortable to have it made. You have to be covered in gunk and you have to have straws up your nose so you can breathe. It's all awful. And uh, it was vastly expensive and it was ridiculous, the most ridiculous thing I've ever done in my entire life. Um, why did I do it? Because all I can say is, well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. So I was kind of curious, well, why do we get these ideas? You know, people, you may think this is crazy, but people do go buy some crazy things. Um, a huge amounts of money they'll buy, and you think, and you ask them, well, why do you do that? And they said, well, we don't really know, but it just, you know, felt like a good idea at the time. So I was kind of interested to know about the neuroscience of that, and this is really what impulse is about. It's about how the brain kind of works in two modes. One is the very rational mode where we we sort of puzzle our head against about a, a complicated problem, and we spend time working on it and analysing data and being very rational and reasonable and objective and logical about our approach to it. And the other, well, we just get a gut instinct. We get a gut feeling, an intuition. And a lot of managers make their decisions primarily on this 
gut instinct. A lot of people, when they, for example, fall in love, they don't they don't sit down and analyze why they fall in love. They just know this is the person for me. This is the person you know who will make my life complete. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes sometimes they're wrong. Uh, in impulse, I talk about the two different approaches to this. One was Charles Darwin. When he got back from his voyage on the Beagle, um, he decided he ought to get married, but he wasn't sure whether he ought to get married, but he thought he ought to get married. So he got a sheet of paper and he put a line down the middle. On the one side, he brought all the pros about being married, companionship, family, all this kind of thing. And on the other side, he wrote all the negative things about he could think about being married. And he, then he totted them all up and the, things, the positive things outweighed the negative things. So he wrote QED, get married, and he got married. And he stayed married for, I think, about 40 years, had an immensely happy relationship with his wife. Now, you know, that, that is a, a lot of people think, wow, that is a pretty cold-blooded way of setting about finding your life partner. But then if we look at someone like Bertrand Russell, who also knew um, the great philosopher, the mathematical philosopher, the, the hugely kind of uh, rational intellect, one might think, he would fall in and out of love like almost like going through a revolving door. He, you know, on one occasion, he was, he'd been married, I think it was his second wife, um, he was just cycling back to the university on his bike and he suddenly thought, oh, I don't think I love her anymore. So he went back and said, I don't love you. I'm going to divorce. So he's kind of, he fell in out of love and, you know, on, a, on an impulse. But essentially, it was just a gut feeling. And so I think that, you know, there are these two ways of, of kind of finding relationships with people and indeed two ways of running businesses and all those other things. And, and sometimes you need to use a logical, you need to kind of put your logical thinking hat on and step back and review the data and do these analysis. But very often what happens is you actually almost know what you want to do and then you look for the evidence in the in the kind of world around you to support that view. In fact, uh, if any of your listeners have a dis difficult decision to make, I suggest they toss a coin. Not that they should actually, you know, depend on how the coin lands, but as the coin is spinning through the air, they will know which way they want it to land. And that's probably giving them an indication of how their intuitive brain is telling them the decision should be made. I think you're absolutely right. Well, what is happening when somebody feels an impulse? From an evolutionary perspective, what is our body trying to do? Well, I think what is happening there is, is this, you're only consciously aware. People tend to think that their conscious awareness of the world is, is, is all there is to it, but there's, there's not. In fact, the consciousness ha has a very, very narrow, as you would say in computing terms, a very narrow um, bandwidth. It can, only, it, it can process around about 11 bits of information per second. But the brain is actually receiving something like a billion bits of information a second from the outside world, through the eyes, through the ears, through the nose, through the sense of touch, but also information coming from inside the brain. Um, all the muscles are sending information back to the brain about how much tension there are, the, uh, whereabouts are they located in space. So if you close your eyes, um, you should be able to bring your fingers together. I'm just trying to do this now um, so that the fingers touch. Um, how can you do that without seeing where your fingers are? Because your brain knows where your fingers are because it's kind of got this um, three-dimensional three map of itself in, in, inside. And all this is happening below the level of conscious awareness. Uh, and, and so when you're making an impulse, you're actually basing your decision on things which are going on outside the level of conscious awareness in your subconscious mind, in your unconscious mind. And it then is when the sort of decision has been made, it's kind of presented to you to the, the frontal cortex of the brain, the what is sometimes described as the executive part of the brain, where, where essentially these conscious decisions are made. And, and one, uh, one uh, philosopher of, 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 sort of science, neurosciences, has said it, the, the, the frontal cortex of the brain, 
these lobes, which are behind the forehead and just over the eye, the orbitofrontal cortex, are a bit like a PR company. <laughs> They're our own personal PR company, our public relations face of the world. And when, when we make a decision, it's the executive branch, the PR branch, which tries to explain why we did it to ourselves and to, and to the rest of the world. So it's kind of putting a gloss on a decision which was probably made below the level of conscious awareness. Now, what are, what are the factors which go into our, our kind of our intuitions? Well, um, it has a lot to do with, uh, with early learning. It has a lot to do with the culture, with, uh, the cultural and social expectations, um, the messages which we learned very, very early on, probably before we had a, a verbal language to express ourselves. All this multiplicity of messages um, is based on our prejudices, on, but also on our experience. So, you know, you might get somebody who's a, a world-class art expert who would look at, a, let's say, a sculptor, a sculpture, and say, oh, there's something wrong with that. I think it's a fake. I don't think it's by, you know... Picasso or whatever, um, or that painting is a freak, and he couldn't or she couldn't say why they think that, but it, something in their gut tells them, and that's based on experience. And so, you know, a doctor, a very experienced doctor, she might say, "I think this is what is wrong with this person," like, and then and then would look for evidence to support this. What was basically a, a an intuition almost, it's, you know, because medicine is both an art and a science, and very often a good diagnostician will get a hunch, a feeling about what is wrong with somebody and then seek the uh, laboratory tests and the other things which you need to do in order to demonstrate that their intuition is right. So your intuition can be based on a huge amount of knowledge and learning and experience, um, but it can also just be based on prejudice, on maybe um, concepts which you, you, you learned you know, 50 years ago and, and <laughs> so and have never bothered to change. I remember when I was doing medicine, there was a very elderly uh, consultant who was very egotistical and very difficult to work with, and um, also very bad doctor. Uh, and but he, he, what he said went. You know, his word was law in the hospital. And on one occasion, uh, another medical student, a friend of mine, challenged him on on a diagnosis he made. And he said, "Yeah, young man, I'll let you know. I've I've had 50 years of diagnosing this particular illness." And this guy said, not a, not a great career move. He said, no, sir, I think you've had one year's experience, which you've repeated 50 times. So, you know, so you, you, can, get, you can get caught into these kind of traps where you actually are, are so blinkered by, by your views, your experience, that you actually can't see the wood for the trees. So that can, it can be dangerous. Intuition, intuition can be a very valuable aid, but uh, on the other hand, it can lead you wildly astray. Can will lead you wildly astray in a relationship, for example. It can lead you wildly astray in making a business decision. So it's 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 not a get out of jail card. It, it can make huge huge errors. But very often, if you feel something is right, and then you can rationalise it, um, the chances are perhaps reasonably high that, that that is the right decision to make. Hmm. So it's almost like we're playing statistics. Yes. We're playing probabilities, I think. Probability. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's a, sorry. That's a better better way to <laughs> to phrase that. But you, you talked about nature conditioning experience, how these nature, affect nature, us. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm assuming that there's also a biological component because most of us get an impulse. For example, when we're on a high building or ledge or cliff, not to get too close to the edge. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we have we have built-in survival mechanisms which are very, which are very uh, evolutionary, very old, and they they would be probably coded in, in some way in the in the DNA. So uh, we have what is called the fight or flight response, which is our response to anything which looks dangerous or risky or hazardous. Um, and this, as soon as you're in a situation where you, you kind of feel 
worried about something, then your whole body switches from kind of relaxed mode to a, a high level of physiological uh, arousal. So it's a little bit like a, a, a battle cruiser going into action. The the captain will take all the sailors away from the the, la the laundry, I guess, and the galleys and things like that, the inessential things, um, in order to man the guns and prepare for combat. And essentially, that's what your body is doing. Um, a huge release of things like nor norepinephrine, epinephrine um, into the system. A whole system is hyped up. Your heart rate beats fast. Your heart rate increases. Your heart beats faster to pump the blood around the body uh, uh, more rapidly in order to fight or flee efficiently. You start to sweat, and your sweat is going to evaporate and cool you down, keep you cool uh, when you're when you're running away or fighting. And so all these changes take place. I mean, quite subtle changes. Your blood actually takes longer to clot uh, so that if you are injured you, you, you won't you won't bleed so it's quite so badly um, and the skin goes pale people look pale when they're frightened because the blood is taken away from the periphery from the uh, little capillaries and blood vessels directly beneath the skin and sent to the muscles again for fighting or fleeing and, and, and the brain becomes very active and very very focused on survival so as you were saying when you go to close to kind of even if, even if you don't suffer from macrophobia a phobia about high heights um, most people don't want to go too close yet now there are some people who like that i mean they you know they they jump from from tall buildings with parachutes i should say not not <laughs> not suicidal um so they will do all sorts of things because a lot of people like this adrenaline buzz what we call the adrenaline high and that's why white knuckle rides in theme parks are so popular because people like this this is what We've done a lot of work looking at how people respond in theme parks. I've visited a lot of theme parks in the States, which are awesome, truly awesome. Um, and you will not get me on any of those rides. When, when we do the research, I send, a, <laughs> I send a, a, a researcher up to do the, make the measurements because I, I just hate them. But nonetheless, a lot of people love them. They get a great buzz. And this is what I call fun fear um, because you know you're safe because these things are engineered to be safe. However dangerous it looks. They are engineered so you're not going to hurt yourself. Um, and so you can enjoy a kind of vicariously the excitement, the adrenaline buzz, which you would get in a truly dangerous situation while at the back of your mind intellectually knowing yourself. So this is fun to fear. But all these changes, I say, take place, and they take place without you thinking about it. Uh, again, below the level of conscious awareness. Um, and that's interesting, to be, you know, kind of talking about what you were saying earlier about the evolution of these fears. Um, there was a very fa a notorious experiment carried out many, many years ago by uh, a man called Watson, um, John Bordas Watson, who's an early American psychologist, actually quite interesting. He got fired from his job at the university for having an affair with his research assistant and then went up to Madison Avenue and uh, kind of made a fortune working for the advertising agency. So, you know, it's not all lost if you lose your academic position. Um, and he carried out a, a very, we would now never countenance. It was a notorious experiment in a sense uh, with a little boy called Little Albert. Uh, and little Albert was an orphan, and they conditioned little Albert to be frightened of rats, to develop a rat phobia. And they did this by giving him a rat to play with. Can you imagine that happening now, getting that past an ethics committee? <laughs> or even the kid's parents come to that. And they gave him a rat to play with, and then every time he saw the rat, they banged on that, made a loud noise behind him. And so he became frightened, and he linked the fear, so they say, to the rat. And so then he became rat phobic. Uh, every time he saw a rat, he would become terrified. So you can condition fear into people. Um, but you've, interestingly, you can't condition fear into, it's much harder uh, and sometimes impossible to condition fear into people about things which are not 
moving. So if you've got, say, a letter, say, a brick and covered it in rat fur, um, you wouldn't get anybody to be phobic about it. So we seem to have this built-in mechanism which tells us we should be afraid of things which move. And so that's why a lot of people are frightened of, of mice, for example, because they can move very quickly, or spiders, which can move very quickly and erratically. So movement seems to be a thing we are particularly conditioned to fear automatically, uh, because, of course, uh, something which moves is likely to be hazardous to us, or could be hazardous, more likely to be hazardous to something which doesn't move, like a tree or a pole. This is super interesting. I, I want to ask you in regards to impulses, uh, if you could talk a bit about how impulse kind of affects the brain in regards to attraction and love. Yeah, physical attraction or um, attraction of some kind is, is, is very important. Because if we're talking about charisma, I mean, one of the things about charisma is that charismatic people are attractive. They're not necessarily very nice people. I mean, the idea that if you're a very nice person, you're going to be automatically charismatic, I think is a huge error. I mean, Winston Churchill, for example, who was you know, the great wartime leader, um, who was everybody who came in, God, I mean, said he, he had a personality. He kind of shone like a beacon to be in his presence, was feel in, in the presence of a great person. But he wasn't very nice. I mean, he was petulant. He was irascible. He was an egotist. Uh, so, you know, the idea, if I'm very nice to everybody, I will be seen as charismatic is, is, not, is not true. I mean, I think, there are, I think charisma is something which, which you can learn. Uh, maybe we can talk about that in a minute, but 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 certainly I think when it comes to attraction, there are a number of things which probably are going on. First of all, there is the appearance of the other person, you know, eyes meeting across a crowded room and love at first sight. Yes, I mean that certainly does happen. Um, they kind of they press all the right buttons in your brain, and and you know if it's mutual attraction, the same same happens to the other person. As part of that, as I say, will certainly be a, a appearance. Uh, there are certain triggers. Um, interestingly, there's, there's a thing which I, which I talk about in Impulse, which is the hip-waist ratio, um, which is, as far as heterosexual male attraction to women, is, is kind of seems to be quite significant um, because they, the same ratio has been found, for example, in all the Playboy bunnies. <laughs> uh, so it, it, it seems to be this kind of ratio of about 0.7, which seems to be really important uh, in, in triggering some kind of response. Now, if you're kind of an evolutionary psychologist, you'll say, well, the reason that a man is looking, and this is kind of a very crude kind of biological interpretation, which I'm not saying I, I, I advocate, but it, it was what they would say. A man wants to have his genes spread as, as among many offspring as possible because it'll preserve him. It's a kind of immortality. Children are an immortality because your gene, part of your genes, is being carried into the next generation. So they'll be looking at when they see a woman uh, at physical clues, which will say she's going to be good at bearing children. Whereas, uh, again, this perspective of an evolutionary biologist would say um, she knows that this child is going to need because human infants are immensely demanding. Um, other animals, they pretty much leave their parents as soon as they can stand. I mean, um, a goat, a baby goat can fend for itself within about five minutes of arriving on the planet. Um, children need years and years of nurturing and care and feeding. So from a woman's point of view, what she wants is a mate who will remain faithful to her and with her and, and help in the burden of raising the child. So, you know, an evolutionary biologist would say that these are the kind of signs which, which are going to increase attraction. But of course, it's not just down that to that. You can very often meet somebody and you know, say you're working with somebody 
And at the first meeting, you, you may not think very much of them. You may not find them particularly attractive. You may not think they're very physically attractive or like aspects of their personality. But then as the days go into weeks and the weeks go into months, you kind of warm to them. You find out more about them. You learn more about them. And kind of this, this initial kind of perhaps indifference can grow into a liking and then maybe the liking can turn into love. So, you know, love can kind of, it doesn't have to be an instant spark, which is kind of flashing between people's eyes. It can be something which, which grows and develops. And the more you, you live together, the more you share your lives together, the more you find out about that person. And, and, and you know, hopefully sometimes your love deepens and other times <laughs> you just realize what a terrible mistake you've made. So I, I think there are a lot of elements to it. I mean, interesting, there may be also be uh, what are called pheromones. This is an olfactory cue, which again is below the level of conscious awareness. You're not aware of the other person's aroma. Um, but one of the interesting things is there are some groups in America um, who will only find partners within that particular religious cult, where they will only look for partners within that particular group. Now, you might think, well, that surely is quite dangerous because they're not huge numbers of them. I mean, there are many hundreds of them, but they're not a vast population. So surely there's a danger there of uh, marriage between people who are so closely related. It's actually going to have some possibly danger to the child. But in fact, they very seldom get attracted to somebody who's closely related to them, even though they don't know that they're, in a sense, closely related to them. And one of the reasons which is given for this is because they can actually smell in a sense, the right smell the person has, the right pheromones, which I say operate below the level of conscious awareness. And they know from this, or part of their brain knows from this, that this person is not closely related to me, and therefore it would be okay to try and develop a relationship with him or her. So essentially they're smelling diversity. Yeah, exactly. They understand who is not going to be genetically related to them, you know, so, so there won't be any kind of problems with the child. Which is interesting. So it may well be that something, and of course, um, perfume manufacturers seek to kind of give us this uh, artificial thing in a, in a spray for men or a perfume for women, something which is going to kind of trigger these um, pheromonal or very primitive olfactory cues. Because your your sense of smell is one of the most powerful smells. When somebody has got, um, let's say, there's a condition uh, called Korsakoff syndrome, which is a condition brought about by alcoholism, where the memory fades, and one of the last memories to fade. Um, is the sense of smell. So uh, a smells can still evoke a memory in somebody, even though the rest of their memory is pretty much shot. Uh, and I think we've all had the experience of having a whiff of some kind of smell, maybe a, an unpleasant smell, something which reminds us of school or hospital visit or a very pleasant smell. When I was working as a, as a therapist, I had one woman um, who was phobic about her mother-in-law. <laughs> you might say, well, that's not, you know, quite common. Um, but this was this was a charming lady. I mean, the, the, the mother-in-law was a charming lady and she couldn't understand why her daughter-in-law hated her so much. And it turned out that the, the, the mother-in-law wore a lavender perfume. And when this woman had been a little girl, she had actually been abused, uh, not sexually, physically abused by... Um, somebody who was caring for her, and this woman wore lavender perfume. And this was kind of by the age of around 18 months, two years. Uh, but nonetheless, this kind of smell triggered in this woman's mind this fear, which she'd experienced when she was 18 months, two years old. And she transferred this fear because the mother-in-law had this lavender perfume. This triggered this fear response. So she was afraid when she saw her mother-in-law, but it was simply down to the fact the perfume triggered this, this adverse memory. It's funny, the first time I ever became aware of this, I was in high school and I was uh, I was 15 years old. And I was working at a restaurant 
and a girl walked by me. She's a woman to me, right? I was still, I considered myself a kid. And she goes, are you wearing degree sport? And I was like, what? And she knew that the type of deodorant I used to wear at the time. And I said, uh, yeah, how do you know that? And she goes, my ex-boyfriend used to wear it. And every time I smell it, it turns me on. And it, and it wasn't until I got older that I realized that once they were having sex, his deodorant would kick in. And so it started uh, creating this association and she became conditioned to get turned on when she smelled my deodorant. Surprise for a 15 year old. Absolutely. The power of aromas. I mean, um, now uh, retailers are using aromas in a huge way, um, both to identify a particular brand. So for example, Hugo Boss, um, what has worked with a company in America, a perfume or creating company, um, and they've created a particular perfume for, for Hugo Boss based on some kind of very exotic African wood. And so if you go into a Hugo Boss shop, uh, you'll, you'll get this smell and this is designed to kind of um, impress people about the brand and the sophistication of the brand and this kind of thing, the exclusivity of the brand. Um, but... Uh, I think everybody knows or shoppers know that, you know, they, they put uh, freshly baked bread aroma into the bakery department. People are going to buy bread because it kind of arouses their uh, appetite or coffee smells that makes people feel good. Um, but it's being used in a much more sophisticated way now, a whole range of aromas. For example, if you go visit a travel agents, um, you may notice the smell of coconut in the air. And the idea there is coconut oil is used for is part of a sun tanning oil. And if you smell that, it may evoke memories of lying on a nice tropical beach and having your partner rub sun lotion into your back. And this may make you go out and buy a holiday, you know, in the Bahamas rather than one in Alaska or something like that. So this is the idea of, of using aromas to trigger people's memories. Um, in, in England, they had a rather good idea. Uh, a baked potato company um, built baked potato shaped of, uh, heaters. Which they installed in bus shelters where people were people were wait, wait for the bus and the, in the middle of winter it's very cold in them and so you could tap this baked potato a lot of nice warm air came out of it but also came, the aroma of a baked potato came out of it and that increased their sales enormously because people were cold they were waiting for their bus they were waiting to get home they were you know they smelt the aroma and they thought wow what i nearly need for my you know, supper when I get home is a baked potato. So there are all sorts of subtle clues, like ways in which influencing, uh, we're influenced when we go shopping by aromas would be a, a very powerful way of, of triggering people to buy, buy a particular product or get a sense of some kind of positive emotion like exclusivity, authenticity, excitement, fun. All these things can be triggered below the level of conscious awareness as an emotional response by an aroma. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating. I, I've heard some research on this. Uh, it's come up in conversation and in some reading where um, the idea that certain retail stores are using certain scents in order to increase sales. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's to, that's exactly right. It's to trigger a kind of a, a positive emotion. You want, you want people to feel good about your product. You want them to feel, you know, essentially emotionally warm. Now, there's an interesting thing, again, about warmth because warmth is very important in um, establishing friendly relationships with people. There was a very fascinating study done where um, the researcher got, uh, a female researcher got men just to hold a, a coffee cup. She had some pretext, she had a hot coffee cup and she, I don't know how she did it, maybe she was traveling up in the elevator and said, oh, could you just uh, hold this for me while I look in my purse for something? But she, they, they found that just the heat of the cup actually increased the attraction for the woman. 
<laughs> because uh, we use language to express these things. We talk about having warm relations with somebody or having the hots for somebody. But we'll be, uh, on the other hand, we will use cold adjectives to describe somebody we don't like. We'll say um, he's a bit of a cold fish, for example, or the atmosphere in the room was chilly. So we use these kind of this dichotomy between hot and cold and hot indicating warm emotions, you know, positive emotions and anything cold being seen as, you know, as negative. So, you know, the warmth of a room in which you meet somebody for the first time can play a big influence on how attractive you find them. If you're cold and shivering, you're less likely to find them attractive than if you're in a nice warm room where you feel relaxed, where, you, you know, the blood is flowing to the surfaces of the skin in that sense. So um, heat can play a very important role in how we feel attracted to people. Another interesting thing is about, we were talking earlier about fear factor and fun fear. If a man is emotionally aroused or uh, physiologically aroused when he meets a woman, he's more likely to find her attractive. Now, they did this, an interesting study on this. Um, they got a female researcher to stop people um, on one of two bridges. They stopped men, I should say, on one of two bridges and, I, and asked them a, a series of fairly banal questions, doing a questionnaire. And she then handed them um, a, a mobile phone number and said, look, if you've got any questions about this study, give me a call. Now, the two bridges she used, one was a, a kind of a suspension bridge, a very narrow bridge over a gorge, and it kind of swayed around. And so you had to keep your wits about you when you, you, know, you were crossing it. It was kind of quite... Uh, for many people, quite an anxiety-arousing experience. Uh, and she stood in the middle <laughs> when she stopped them. And in the other bridge, like a big solid bridge, you know, like, you know, you wouldn't be worried about crossing that at all. And she found that the men she stopped on the suspension bridge were actually more likely to call her because they they were aroused because the, the adrenaline was pumping because the bridge was kind of slightly, looked slightly hazardous. And they, trans they thought... In a sense, that below the level of conscious awareness, their brain was saying, wow, we feel aroused. Why did we feel aroused? Well, obviously because we're attracted to this woman. <laughs> Whereas on the solid bridge, they weren't aroused. And so, you know, it was just a, 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 an attractive woman, but nothing special. And so this is why a couple who go, say, to a see a, or go on, a, let's say, a white knuckle ride together, uh, and indeed that study has been conducted uh, where, where they found people, strangers, a man and a woman who sat next to each other on a white knuckle ride were more likely to express liking for the other person when they got out the other end. So being afraid or being aroused in that sense, watching a scary movie, uh, playing a scary video game, going on a white knuckle ride, or in some other situation where you feel slightly physiologically aroused, you're likely to kind of try and explain that arousal, and on the part of the man at least, uh, by saying, it must be the woman who made me feel this way. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, 
check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. I also feel like there's some tie between, and maybe you could expand on this, between emotion and memory in the sense that it appears, and this is definitely kind of a layman's interpretation, I feel like our emotions are often, to a certain extent, like a Google search algorithm in the sense that they seem to help us prioritize what's important. And I feel like there's an element there in this, like when somebody gets really aroused, they're like, oh, this must be important and stays kind of in the top of the mind awareness. I'm wondering if you could maybe expand on this, talk about this, tell me if I'm crazy. Um, just kind of an interpretation I've seen. No, I think that's absolutely right. Emotions are hugely important. I mean, when you're depressed, for example, um, your memories tend to be very negative memories. You remember all the sad things, all the bad things, all the mad things which have happened to you in your life. It's very hard to remember anything which gave you pleasure because one of the one of the um, symptoms of, of depression is what we call anhedonia, an inability to find pleasure from anything which which you previously found pleasure, which other people find pleasurable. So certainly when you're, in, when you're in a down, your memories of sad things will be much better than your memory of bright, happy things. And when you're happy, um, it's very easy to remember all the happy times you, you, you've had and all the good, good, good times. So whether your emotions are positive or negative will affect the kind of memories which are kind of are, are dredged up. And the interesting thing about emotion is it's very often the label you put on these feelings. Um, now, if I was to put three people in, in, in different rooms so I couldn't see them and I wired them up, so um, I was, say, measuring things like their changing in heart rate variability, um, skin conductance, which is a measure of how physiologically aroused people are. This is something they use in, in, the, in the American in the lie detector, in the polygraph. Um, and maybe I was looking at some aspects of their brain function using an EEG electroencephalograph to look at the brain activity. And looking at these various uh, biological parameters, and, and I had all this equipment kind of being uh, sending messages to me in a, in a different other room. So I've got one person there, and I'm going to make him very, very angry. And I've got another person there, I'm going to make him very, very afraid. And I'm going to make the third person very, very happy. I'm going to have a lot of jokes and things that are going to make him feel very euphoric. Looking at the equipment, I couldn't tell which state of mind they were in. I couldn't tell who was angry and who was anxious. I couldn't tell who was um, happy and uh, or anything because all the physiological changes would be the same. So it's it's the three things I think which are going on. First of all, it's the context in which the emotion is being experienced. Is is it something which makes you frustrated and angry? Is it something which should make you happy, or is it something which should make you uh, afraid? Um, and then also it's the label you put on people. When I was, as I say, working as a therapist, if you had somebody who was very unable to, to, to stand up for him or herself, who, who was very put upon by other people, um, who interpreted the emotional response where they were in perhaps in the presence of a, a, a boss who was very critical and very difficult to deal with, um, and they would interpret the heart increased heart rate, for example, the dry mouth as fear, you'd get them to say, no, don't, don't see it as fear, just see it, see it as um, essentially anger which you, you should translate not into aggression, but into assertion. So use these signals which you're at the moment, these emotional signals which you're actually translating is, as fear, as, as something which is a positive thing for you, which is assertion. So you can stand up for yourself in this way. So simply by sometimes changing the label. I mean, that's what 
people working in hospitals will do and, and people in working for the emergency services will do. They'll use a lot of humour, what we call gallows humour, black humour, in order to kind of change the context in which they see terrible things into something which they can laugh at. I, mean, I don't mean laugh at in a cruel way, but laugh at really to preserve their sense of sanity <laughs> in a way. You know what I mean? So uh, all soldiers in the, in, in the front line will have huge comradeship between them and also a lot of humour. That's one of the things you talk to serving uh, people, people who've served in, in Iran, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, um, and, and they will tell you that it was the humour of the situation. And so we very often use humour in order to replace very bad memories, very negative memories, um, with happier memories. So our emotions can be manipulated by other people, and indeed they are manipulated by other people for a whole range of reasons, for commercial reasons, to sell us things, and um, for political reasons, to, to sell us on a particular... Um, Party policy, for example, uh, music is a very effective way of doing this. A certain piece of music will uh, often kind of bring the hairs up on the back of your neck. You you kind of this this tingle in the spine, uh, and it depends on your your exposure to music, your background, and what what kind of music works for you. But uh, uh, Noel Carr, the the British uh, songwriter. Um, said once said that it was amazing how potent cheap music is. So in other words, it doesn't have to be great. You know, symphonies by Beethoven and Brahms and Mozart. It it can be just kind of kind of cheap music, but nonetheless you listen to it and it evokes memories. And maybe these are very happy memories, so you feel euphoric. Maybe they're very sad memories, and maybe they're memories of the time you met the person in your life, or maybe the time you broke up with the person in your life. So music, you know, has like this huge power um, to to move us. And you know, uh, soldiers march into battle. With march music, they don't march into battle with with slow time. Um, so you know these these kind of pieces of music, and it's it's interesting to see how political parties of all shades use music in in their conferences and things to arouse people very often to you know get get them in the in the right frame of mind to listen to the political messages. So one needs to be aware of how music can really shape our emotions, and our emotions can then shape our memories. And then our memories can perhaps shape our actions. It makes me think of so many different things. Um, and I'll just kind of go through a few of them. One, I mean, we're really talking about our different senses, right? Whether uh, visual stimulation, the sense of smell, uh, the sense of hearing. And it's funny because even when I'm coaching and I take somebody out, and one of the things I'll tell them is pay attention to the feeling or vibe of the venue, wherever you're at. But that's impacted by the sound. So they use sound or they use music. Most frequently, when you're out, there's very few restaurants or singles of events you're going to go out to where they're not playing music because they're trying to lead the emotional, like kind of the emotions of the people in the room. And so I find that absolutely fascinating. And it goes back to all these different things that we're talking about, all these different kind of associations and and even emotions. You're talking a little bit about kind of emotional manipulation of political parties, but we do this and the people that we interact with, right? So like we're feeling good at manifest or body language, the people around us oftentimes will pick that up and it will have an effect on their emotions. Absolutely. I, I was thinking about the word charisma actually, because it's an interesting word. You actually, you could use that as a, as a mnemonic, uh, as a, an aid to memory, I should say, because it, it actually, I think it embodies the kind of things which would make it very much easier. This is something you've found in your coaching, but it seems to me there are a number of things people can do in order to kind of increase their level of charisma to make them the kind of people who other people want to be with. And I think the first thing I would say, I mean, starting with the C, 
of the mnemonic is, is just be comfortable with yourself, feel comfortable in your own skin, you know, be in touch with yourself. I mean, don't just say and do things which are really not the things you want to say and do in order to try and impress people. I think there's a, a huge, particularly perhaps at the first meeting, a huge desire to come over, not really in the way you are, but in the way you, you think the other person thinks you ought to be, that kind of thing. So, you know, go, I think being comfortable, you know, answering questions in a way which you're, you're, you feel comfortable in answering or, you know, that I think is very important. I think um, being happy, we're talking about happiness. I think people like to be with happy people. <laughs> they, they would much sooner be with somebody who looks happy, both verbally and non-verbally. I don't mean the awful thing of telling jokes, you know, people who, men particularly, think all you've got to do to be, seem to be happy is to fire jokes, one-liners at another person. And that usually is not a very good way of, of kind of meeting with people. I think take responsibility, coming to the, the R, you know, take responsibility for, for what, you, what you, you do and what you say. Um, and, and I also think that it's very important to, to interest yourself in others and actually to listen to them. We're so often so busy trying to sell ourselves in this kind of salesman or salesperson-like way. We don't actually listen to the other person. I think, you know, developing the skill to listen to other people and respond to them. Because so often you'll say, there was a, there's a famous story, an American president, I think it was Roosevelt, um, who believed, he, didn't, he, he thought people were so overwhelmed to meet the president of the United States that they never listened um, to, to what he said. Uh, you know, meeting them sort of casually, so standing in line and just shaking the president's hand. And, and so um, he, he had this de de device which he, he apparently he used. And when somebody shook his hand and said, oh, how are you, Mr. President? He'd say, oh, fine, I murdered my mother-in-law today. And they wouldn't say, they wouldn't kind of look back and say, what? <laughs> They'd say, oh, how, how very nice. And things. So they obviously weren't listening, you know? So you kind of try that because people actually don't really very often listen. And that's one reason why we found it so hard to remember somebody's name after a first meeting. It's because we're not actually listening. We're looking at the other person. We're thinking, perhaps, do I fancy him or her? Does he or she fancy me? Um, am I making a good impression? You know, this kind of thing. So we're actually, a, we, we, our conscious mind, we're not mindful of the, of the initial meeting. And so we don't actually input their name into our memory bank. So that's why we can't recall it. It's not, it's not in memory. So just when you first meet somebody at first for the first meeting, you know, when you're, say, say shaking hands, a formal shake hands or whatever, and they give you their name and you give them theirs, you know, they repeat that name. Don't crash in with the first conversation you want to have because that'll just blot it out. And we like, we like people who remember our names, even if we know that it's kind of a trick. I and mean, then there was a book some several years ago, a very popular business book in the States called In Search of Excellence. And the authors recount how they went to a hotel and where they'd stayed a couple of years earlier and the receptionist said, oh, how nice to see you. And she named them, gave them their name and everything. Now, they knew she, she was just glancing down the computer screen, <laughs> you know, which was giving, giving her, her, their names. But nonetheless, they felt good about this. So we do feel good when somebody remembers our name and maybe remembers some details of us. And that's a great way of impressing other people, you know, just by showing that you've listened to what they've said, you've, you, you've cared for what they've said, and you've taken kind of some interest in what they've said. It makes me think of supermarkets about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, they introduced those cards when you walk through, at least in the United States, when you walk through. Yeah. And, and what they do is they look at your name and they go, well, thank you, Mr. Lewis. It was great for you to come mm -hmm. in. And you know that these people have no idea who you are, <laughs> except for <laughs> the fact that they're compiling some data on which yeah. cereals you, you buy. Um, but it works. 
Well, it does because we just feel flattered. We feel, um, you know, a non-sexual touch can be very effective. There was a study carried out in the States in the library where they got the librarian just to very bright, lightly brush that, not in any sexual way, but just the hand of the person as, as she handed out the book. And afterwards they asked people what they thought of the library and asked them to assess the library and this kind of thing. And those who had their hand brushed, that kind of moment of human contact, um, like the library a lot better. So, you know, we are very much tuned into other people. We are social animals. And if we think somebody likes us, listens to us, um, we're going to feel, you know, positive about, uh, about, about them. And if they are, are selling us, we know that, the, you know, they are paid to sell things to us. But nonetheless, although we know they're not our friends, it's nice to have a friendly relationship with people. It makes life easier for us. This is kind of a, a little bit of a step back, but it's something I do want to ask you about. We, t we were talking a little bit about when somebody would approach, for example, the American president. And who, who did you use in the example? I think, I think actually, I said Roosevelt. I think it was Truman, Harry Truman, who said that. He would say, yeah, I murdered my mother-in-law today, and they wouldn't, <laughs> okay. they, they wouldn't listen to him. Okay, okay so you're, you're talking about Truman and how people wouldn't pay attention to what he says. And I, I think that there's probably an element of this where people just get nervous and they worry about judgment. And I feel like the guys who are listening to this do the same thing when they're around a woman who's attractive. Yep. And so there's this impulse, we talk about impulse, where they get nervous and they don't want to approach her even though they're attracted to her. And then when they get around her, they ask her for a name, they can't remember her name, they forget what they're saying, they can't have a normal conversation. <laughs> I, I wonder if you could kind of give us a little bit of insight into this. Well, this is exactly right. I mean, when we feel we're in the presence of somebody who's much more powerful than we are, uh, maybe much more powerful because they're much, at least in our minds, they are much more attractive, sexually attractive or physically attractive than we are, or because they're much richer than we are, um, or because they're, in a political sense, very, very, very powerful individuals. Um, we do find it very hard to know what to say. We are so worried about the impression we're making on them, and we want to make a good impression. And in, in a sense, the, the harder you try and sell something, whether it's yourself or, or anything else, to another person, the, the, the more ineffective you're going to prove. You need to really, and it's a very hard thing to learn how to do. It can be, it can be taught, it can be learned how to do. It's just to be cool about it, to kind of to, to, to distance yourself and be more, as I say, mindful. I think what you're talking about with people kind of getting tongue-tied and being clumsy and spilling drinks and just making themselves into complete clowns uh, is because they essentially doing it in a mindless way, almost in a zombie-like way. Their brain is so busy processing other kinds of data, which in a sense are irrelevant to that particular situation about does she, does she like me, does she fancy me, you know, why should a woman this attractive fancy me? I and mean, all these kind of negative things which are going on. And so the, the, the brain is struggling to cope with it, with it. And he's making these huge amounts of mistakes. I mean, I think in a sense, it comes with, with a certain amount of practice. Um, I think when you're 16 or 17, you know, you don't have a huge amount of experience of life. You are probably quite gauche. Uh, you, you know, it's no fault of yours. Um, it's just you're not particularly mature. In fact, the, the brain, particularly the frontal cortex of the brain, which we were talking about earlier, this kind of executive area of the brain, doesn't, doesn't actually mature, doesn't finish growing until the age of about 20. And that's why young, particularly young males, teenage males, tend to be very impulsive, very risk-taking, because they don't have, actually have, the brain has not developed to a point where you can actually make these judgments. So I think a, a certain amount of 
of maturity comes into it, a certain amount of experience comes into it. And I think a certain amount of, of, of self-confidence as well. I think people who are very unconfident about themselves will actually become much, much more anxious. And this is, this is, I think, why a lot of women who are considered hugely attractive are not approached by men. Um, simply because they feel, you know, she's kind of out of my out of my league, uh, and therefore she. Why should she be interested in somebody like me? Well, you know, uh, I d I don't know why they should be, but human nature is 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 curious, and people can be interested in all sorts of things. I mean, if you think of Arthur Miller, uh, and and Marilyn Monroe, I you know Arthur Miller was not kind of every woman's. He was a hugely intelligent man, a wonderful playwright, but he wasn't every woman's idea of the of the perfect mate. Um, so I think, you know, men very often underestimate their ability to attract very attractive women um, simply because they underestimate themselves. They, they, they put themselves down constantly. I think one of the problems is when children are growing up, they're very often taught more um, don't rules than do rules. And they kind of, they see the world as full of impossibilities um, rather than full of possibilities. There's an element that I feel like that has to do with hierarchies and nurturing. Right. And so we become kind of conditioned to fit a particular place in a hierarchy so that we kind of know our role in our place. And people do above this for various reasons, uh, but one is to protect us. Um, but it's hard to unlearn some of these concepts. Uh, absolutely. And I think early experience is, is hugely important. In the, in the UK, I, I think also in some schools in America, they're single sex schools. Um, and sometimes this is argued from an educational point of view, it's a good thing that girls will concentrate better on their studies if there are no boys around and similarly <laughs> boys will study better. But I think not having any interaction at an early age with the members of the opposite sex is, is hugely damaging. You've got a, a, a boy comes out of a what we call in the UK public schools, in fact they're not, they're private schools <laughs> and they cost a lot of money um, to go there, who's never had any interaction with a woman at all, perhaps except in the role of a teacher or a you know, some kind of matron within the school to look after kids. I mean, how is he exposed to, you know, able to develop these, the actual skills, to learn the skills he needs, just to, to get on with a member of the opposite sex in a perfectly, not in a, necessarily in a sexual way or predatory way, but just in a, in a way which sees sees them as just as equals. You know, I think it's, it's very hard. I think early learning, years ago, I wrote a number of books on child development, uh, and one of them was really about, because called Mind Skills, was about how children develop these skills and also I, I, I thought and many many developmental psychologists would agree that the first five years of your life are perhaps the most crucial you learn more in the first five years than you're likely to ever learn no matter if you go on and get all the degrees in the world because in the first five years you learn about the world you learn how to speak your native language or several languages if you're in a multilingual household um, so you learn all these basic things which are essential for survival in the world um, and and the, the brain of the, of the three and four year old is so able to take in all this information you know a, a child who grows up in a in a family where they speak six languages say will speak with six languages without realizing it was anything difficult to do if as an adult you come back and you want to learn even one extra language it can be a real struggle so i, I think anybody who's listening who's got children really be aware that the first five years are not kind of the child's not kind of in a, some kind of parking lot waiting to start formal education. The child is learning everything and, and she or he is learning it from the world around them. And so, you know, the more enriched the environment, the more stimulated the environment, um, the more social interaction they have, um, the more likely they are to grow into, into you know, well intellectually and emotionally nourished human beings. So essentially, we all incubate these skill sets. Yes, we do. And then whether or not we manifest them later on in life. 
um, you know, very much depends on our circumstances, on, on how we uh, how we grow up, what opportunities we have, um, and how much confidence we can build in our abilities. I mean, everybody has it was once said to me, and it's it's a wise thing for somebody who has said that that everybody you meet will be in some way wiser and more knowledgeable than you are because they will have had experiences and, and you know which you haven't had so if you you know if you see everybody you meet from those kind of <laughs> almost kind of the, per the person who's sweeping the streets to the, to the person who's running a multi-billion dollar corporation they all have knowledge which you don't have they're all wiser in some ways than you are and you in many ways you know in some ways are wiser than they are so i don't think we need to put ourselves down I think you're right. This is great. I know we're running out over on time. There's a couple questions I definitely want to ask you. One of them is, and it shifts gears a little bit uh, because I know I want to get into the subject. You've done some research on kind of how the brain behaves when one person sees another person. So guys often ask, like, what do women find attractive? I think straight guys don't understand what women find attractive about themselves, even. <laughs> so what, what is it that, yeah, what is it that women? look for at a man's body or find most and least attractive? Well, there have been studies in this area. Um, uh, there have been various surveys and things. Um, and w I suppose the three things which, which women, at least in these surveys, you know, I can only report what, what the survey said, obviously. Um, one thing that women said they found at, uh, attractive um, was a, an almost very slight feminine touch to a very masculine man. So, for example, soft hairs on a very muscular arm, for example. Um, would be cons would be considered att attractive. So it was this kind of clues, kind of almost softening the. You got a uh, perhaps a macho looking man, but there's kind of some kind of softening to it. So that might be one thing which would would, would attract them. Uh, men's posteriors, uh, their bottoms seem to be a source of quite a lot of attraction for women. Um, and I guess there, you know, what they would be looking at would be something which was trim rather than something which is kind of overflowing, if I can put it like that. So there are certain physical characteristics. Um, so eyelashes can be quite important. They're so quite small things, kind of, kind of look quite long and curly. And again, it's almost slightly a feminine look to the, to the eyelashes. So small feminine touches on a, on a man who looks, looks masculine. Um, seem seem to be something which which is very important. But I I think as much as I think men tend to be very very much physically, again it's a generalisation. I'm sure you'll get letters, um, but they tend when they see a woman to look at her physical attractiveness. Um, women I think tend to much more, and I know it's a cliche to say this, but I think women tend to be more interested in the man as a whole as a whole human being rather than just particular aspects of, of of his body and and I think personality there can can, can play a can play a, a huge a huge role um, and sometimes you know it, it's it's hard for men to actually appreciate that that they have this because we are so image driven and we all the images we have both for men and women are these kind of super hunks and and super bimbos and these kind of really sexy looking people you see in the magazines and on, on commercials and things like that and most people are not like that sadly or happily uh, you know so i think you've got to have much more confidence in, in in yourself um if you like somebody the chances are they will will like you they may not fall in love with you but they will like you and if you if you're really not very interested in anybody but yourself you know and some people are so so into themselves that you just think how can they ever have a relationship with anybody i remember i, I worked on a documentary film we had a uh, one of the presenters was extremely uh, conceited. 
I won't say who he was, but he's very famous. And um, we were doing a piece about how if you're suffering pain and you look at a photograph of a loved one, it can soften the amount of pain. It can subjectively reduce the amount of pain you're suffering. So we were talking about that. And I, um, I was going to inflict a certain amount of pain on this man, you know, with his, with his consent. Uh, and so I said, uh, you know, if you bring along a photograph of your loved one, and then, and then we can see how this affects you. And so uh, we were about to film this setup, and I'd wired him up, so I was going to give him a light, slight electric shock. And uh, so I said, oh, have you got a picture of your loved one? And he was kind of fumbling around for it. And the cameraman said, oh, just show him, give him, look, in, look into a mirror. <laughs> That's the person you truly love. And so, you know, he, even to the crew, he'd come across as his supreme egotist. So I think that, you know, if somebody is in that position, they're not actually very likely to be very attracted to other people. We are attracted to people who we feel are attractive to us, who are warm, who are empathic. I mean, this is, I'm not talking about one night stands. I'm talking actually about developing a relationship with somebody, uh, you know, because I think when you're talking about kind of one night stands, then you're looking purely at physical attraction. But for, for anything which is longer lasting, then I think you're looking at other things, deeper things, personality, uh, the ability to empathize, the ability to have a, a sense of humor to it and not take everything too seriously. Um, because, you know, life basically is a bit of a joke. We're going back in a lot of ways, kind of full circle in the sense that we're going back to impulse, right? How does somebody feel around you? Uh, that's exactly right. And a lot of that, you you know, they're not going to go, they're not going to bring out their sketch pad and write down, this is what I like about him or her. This is what I don't like about him or her. Now let's let up the number of positive points, add up the number of negative points. Okay. The positive points just about win. 16 positives to 14 negatives, I may as well have a date with him. It doesn't work like that, as anybody who's got a date knows. So it's, it's to do with this at an emotional feeling, at an intuitive feeling. Um, do they feel comfortable? And I think feeling comfortable with somebody is perhaps one of the most important things you can learn um, to try and do. And you'll only start, people will only start to feel comfortable in your presence if you feel comfortable in yourself. If, if you're full of riddled with doubts and anxieties, then you're not comfortable in yourself. You're kind of wearing a very scratchy suit uh, and you want to kind of get comfortable with yourself and then other people will be comfortable with you. David, I'm about over on time. I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And if you're listening, you want to learn more about David, I'm going to post some links to his books, his kind of services, his business. Um, it's been absolutely amazing. Well, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. I hope, you know, some of the things I've said have been helpful. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Charisma website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.